Lot's decision to lift up his eyes and to decide not with what God had for him, but what he desired with his eyes, something that looked good in the flesh, to decide based on that. It had devastating consequences. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. word of God, and uh, let's go ahead and pray together, and then we'll jump into our text. So our gracious Father, we thank you this morning for your powerful word that does not return void, but accomplishes the purpose for which you've sent it. Jesus, our Savior, and Lord, your words are our spirit, and they are life. Lord, we know that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. We thank you that your word is truth. Every word of God proves true, And Lord, the truth will set us free. So this morning, we open your word by faith. We know that Hebrews 11 tells us without faith, it's impossible to please God because we must believe that you exist and that you desire to diligently bless those who diligently seek you. You reward those who seek you. So Lord, we by faith seek you this morning diligently, desiring to mine the riches of your word for good treasure. Lord, we thank you that uh, your word will surpass whatever truth is in this world and your word is enough. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you administer to our hearts this morning as we digest this text. Lord, we also wanna thank you for providing this potential property. Lord, we pray that you would provide, that you would motivate our hearts by your spirit to be active in our giving, active in our service, active in our encouragement, active in our unity, and active in our gospel commitment. Lord, we pray that you'd bless our church. And as we open your word, even now, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. It's in your sovereign and gracious name, the name above all names, the name as we just read and sang, who is like you, O Lord? The answer is there is no one like you. So Lord, it's in your name alone that we pray these things and we trust you for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we're gonna get to the text, but I wanna open this morning with a bit of an introduction to set up the sermon, set up the text this morning. And that is that in the book of Galatians, incredibly and vitally important New Testament epistle, Paul the Apostle opens this letter not commending the church like he does with seemingly every other letter to a church, but in the book of Galatians, he opens his letter rebuking the churches in that region of Asia Minor because they had begun to turn to a different gospel. Now, the word gospel means good news, so there is no other gospel because to have anything else that purports to be good news but it isn't the good news is, by definition, not good news. So there is no other gospel. Paul says you've been trying to turn away from the true gospel and you've been trying to listen to that that argues for keeping the works of the law rather than by faith to be justified. So Paul rebukes them. And then he shows them in the book of Galatians a series of examples from the life of Abraham. In fact, I want to start encouraging us to, in our 
devotional life throughout the week to be meditating through the book of Galatians as we look at the life of Abraham because there's a lot of correlation between the two. Paul shows them in Galatians what Abram did with Ishmael, the son that was not the son of the promise. And Paul says that this son was born of the flesh. And the flesh represents then that which is slavish, worldly, ungodly, and not by faith. In fact, in Galatians 3, Paul says, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And it's a valid question. You began in the spirit. How can you now add to the work of God your own works? How can you try to be perfect in the flesh? Why would you add the constraints of the law onto the grace of God in our justification? And so doing that is an example of trusting in the arm of the flesh, something I do or add to my salvation rather than doing, uh, walking by faith. And this produces worldliness, it produces slavery, and it's not of the spirit because it's not of faith. Well, then in chapter five, I'm going somewhere with this. In chapter five, it all becomes practical. In Galatians 5, 16 and 17, Paul says, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you notice the warring language there? They're opposed, they're against one another, they're at enmity. So Paul is saying to walk in the spirit is to walk by faith. Conversely, to walk in the flesh is to not walk by faith. It's to be cut off from the spirit. It's to be walking in an unbelief. Jesus himself in John 6, 63 says, it's the spirit who gives life, but the flesh is no help at all. In our text this morning, we are going to have on display in front of us what seems to be a very visible example of someone walking in the flesh versus a very visible example of someone who's walking by faith. Uh, today, we're going to see the warfare that's happening uh, between the, the flesh and a person who walks by faith. We're going to see Lot providing an alternate example than Abram's. And, and Lot's example is the flesh, and Abram's example is who the just, uh, the just who live by faith. Now, if you weren't here last week, we've been studying through Genesis verse by verse. And last week, we saw Abram getting settled into the land of Canaan and then immediately evacuating because of this severe famine in the land. And we saw how he went down with his family down into Egypt and he escaped the plight that was happening, but then he started scheming. He schemed to protect himself even at the expense of his wife's security. We saw how God struck Pharaoh with plagues and then Pharaoh, this unbeliever, rebukes Abram about lying about his wife, Sarai, who he said is just my sister, which was sort of true, but not fully true. He was, she was actually his wife. And we saw how Abram was given gifts of servants and animals. And as we open the first few, four verses of chapter 13, we saw he returns to the land of promise. He didn't stay as a resident permanently in Egypt. He went back obediently and he once again began to call on the name of the Lord. Well, this morning we're going to continue in chapter 13, and we're going to cover all the way through the, the first half of chapter 14. So we have a lot of ground to cover. And what we're going to see throughout this text is a series of conflicts. 
So first we're going to see a conflict between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. We're going to see how this land can't support both of them, and that leads to an argument. So Lot separates from his uncle, but God uses that separation as an occasion to once again reaffirm his promise to Abraham. So that's the first conflict. We're also going to see a second conflict in chapter 14 with a confederation of five city kings who raise up against a more powerful alliance of four city kings. We have a bunch of fun names to read through. And we're going to see how this fallout, the fallout from this skirmish will devastate Lot. Well, finally, we're going to see one more unexpected conflict, and that's Abram himself rising up as what seems to be a warrior king with a well-planned, bold, unexpected initiative from Abram to go and rally an army to rescue Lot from captivity and destruction. Now, as we apply this text, again, we're going to learn from Lot what does it mean to walk, live according to the flesh versus what it means to walk by faith. And we're also going to see a glorious picture of the salvation that we have in Christ alone. So today we're breaking this lengthy passage into three sections. Again, the application is what the sections are going to be rooted in. So we're not going to make application at the end. We're just going to root it all in the gospel, but we'll make application as we go, point by point. So if you're taking note, please jot these down or snap a photo of the slide. These are also provided on our website and our podcast page if you just look up Shoreline Online. So first, we're going to see God's promise cannot be compared with what the flesh promises, verses 5 through 18 of chapter 13. Then we're going to see how Lot's decision, the flesh, leads to corruption, bondage, and death, chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. And then we'll be reminded that only a mighty Savior can bring freedom and life, verses 13 through 16. So let's begin with the first section. God's promise cannot be compared with what the flesh promises. Look at verse 5 with me. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And then we get this little note that's actually very important. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So it wasn't Abram and Lot who were in conflict, but their herdsmen. Now let's not forget the land of Canaan is expansive, but it's not without its limitations. Israel today, and as the time of Abram, was bordered by the Mediterranean Sea to the west and the Jordan River Valley, the Dead Sea to the east. We have Egypt and the Red Sea to the south. Uh, Even modern-day Israel is very small when even compared to the state of Florida. It's about six times smaller. In fact, if you left Tampa or our area and drove north, by the time you passed Jacksonville, you've passed outside of Israel. So it's a very small piece of land comparatively. But when we think about Abram and Lot dwelling in a very, very particular spot within that small land, along with the Canaanites and the Perizzites, we realize there's just not enough habitable space for even the livestock to graze. So listen, this is not an arbitrary disagreement like when our Wi-Fi isn't fast enough to support our teenagers' refresh rate while they're gaming online. That's not the way they come in, Dad, get off your phone. I have no bandwidth. That's not the idea here. This overcrowding problem, it's serious. And this could result in artificial famine. We saw last week how real famine can be severe. 
But see, now it's not that there's an actual famine. It's that we don't have any more room to graze. So we're, we're going to start starving just because we're overcrowding. We have too many mouths to feed, so we have to part ways. Now, by the way, this overcrowding, this overcrowding that leads to separating is also going to be revisited in the life of Jacob and the life of Isaac. Now, we've already met the Canaanites, but here we're introduced to the Perizzites. The Perizzites were not city dwellers. They were nomadic. They were land, rural dwellers. And eventually, these are one of the handful of kingdoms that God is going to drive out before Israel as Israel's led into the land with Joshua many years from now. But here, I believe God is orchestrating this overcrowding to separate Lot out from Abram. Just as Abram has been separated from the nations in Genesis 10 and 11, just as he's been separated from Ur of the Chaldeans, he's been separated from his kindred and his land to go to the land he'd show him. Now there's a new separation. Lot needs to be called out away from Abram. Let's not forget, Abram has just recently returned from Egypt with much more than he entered Egypt with. But I believe he came back into the land of Canaan with more than just flocks and servants. I think he came back with a new perspective. Remember, we saw him enter Egypt, and what was he doing? He was preoccupied with looking out for number one. He's taken his wife in, and he's willing to lie and deceive and put her into harm's way to protect himself for his own security, for his own interest even if that means being deceitful. But now what we're about to see is with his own kin, he again has the opportunity to prioritize himself and his future in the land. After all, the promise was made to him, not to Lot. So if anything, he is about to have the opportunity to say, Lot, it's time for you to leave. I'm the one who's anointed here by the presence of God and the promise of God, so it's time for you to peace out. Is that what he does? Is he going to assert his dominance, assert his authority, assert his priority? Well, look at verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will take the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, uh, in studying this this week, a lot of commentators condemn Abram's action here as passive. And they get really stressed out that Abram did this. They say Abram's potentially threatening God's promise. In fact, one person's gloomy outlook was, they said, thanks to Abraham, the promise is about to teeter on the whim of the father of the Moabites. And I just say to that, bah humbug, angry. That's not what's actually happening here. I believe Abram's not being passive. He's actually walking by faith. He's trusting a sovereign God to orchestrate even a sinful man like Lot's decision, even as Abram is making himself the lesser person. We know he's the greater person, but he makes himself lesser. Abram, listen, defers to Lot in order to minimize the strife in their relationship. There's a sermon in there for someone. He's minimizing himself to minimize the strife. I like what one tweet said recently. This person said, don't be the bigger person. You've heard that. You're in a fight. Be the bigger person. They said, no, be the smaller person. Lower yourself. Give a person what they don't deserve, not because you're bigger or better than them, but because you're just like them. Love them because you yourself are loved. 
despite what you deserve. Be the smaller person. I think that's what Abraham does here. But that also means the opposite, doesn't it? The secret to relational, not harmony, but discord is to make yourself the greater person. You approach your marriage or your friendship. I'm more important than you. I'm to be respected. I'm to be honored. I'm to be loved. I demand this, this, and this. Whatever we tell ourselves or the people around us, at the core, it's making ourselves greater rather than lesser. And Jesus' example in Philippians 2 is not even just to make himself less. It's to make himself nothing. May we do the same. Well, look how he responds. Verse 10, Abram says, you choose. And Lot, and and it, it really is, though, The promised land is in jeopardy, you could argue. And what does he decide? Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes. That's an important phrase. He lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Did you catch what Lot does? Lot lifts up his eyes. What is he looking for? What does he notice? He looks out and he says, ooh, the land to the east is well watered. It is like the garden of the Lord. It's like Eden. It's like the land of Egypt, which we just fled from. (laughs) And then we get this very important little parenthetical note. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. This seems like a great decision, and yet this is an ominous prelude to what's coming. The Jordan Valley, I think we have a picture of it. It, it, This is what he would have seen. It's a very fertile and lush trough of land. It runs right through the Jordan and alongside the Jordan River. At its widest, this, this river valley is about six miles across, and then as it broadens out, it opens up into a delta going into the Dead Sea. And so he would have looked out and he would have said, that land looks green, that looks well watered. And yet, who wouldn't pick that? As you look out in the land, you say, I want that, I'll take that. But we learn here it's in the direction of Zoar, and this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's inching closer to a place that's about to be destroyed. In fact, look at verse 12. Instead, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And then we see in verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. We realize this is the place he's headed towards the place that's about to incur the judgment of God by fire. Now there's a saying, you guys know the saying, it goes something like this, not all that glitters is gold. You've heard that before? See, Lot is making his decision, not saying, Abram, let's set up an altar and let's pray. Let's ask the Lord. Let's inquire of the Lord to see which way I should go. He he doesn't either return the Oriental, ancient Near East custom of first refusing the offer, but then accepting uh, the offer. Here's here's what happens in our ancient Near East and in our culture a little bit. Uh, What would happen is if, let's say, someone takes you to dinner and they said, hey, let me pay for dinner. Um, it, was, it was an ancient oriental custom that you uh, always refuse at first. You never say, okay, sure, thanks for buying dinner. You always say, um, no, let me pay for dinner. You're like, I really hope that uh, I don't have to pay for dinner, but hopefully they'll, they'll at least see that I'm trying to be kind. And, then, and some guys argue over it. They arm wrestle over the, the bill. They go up to the waiter. I do that sometimes. 
and uh, I want to pay for the meal. Um, the idea is that you would at least say, let me pay for it. No, okay, no worries. And we'll see that come into play a little bit later. He doesn't do that. He just goes right for it. Hey, you offer it. And he says, okay, I'll, I'll, take, uh, I'll take east. He's appealing, or he's looking at what appeals to the desire of the eyes. First John 2 says the things of this world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life are not from the Father. You see, we're to have the love of the Father, not the love of this world. He's selfishly, carnally lifting up his eyes to look at what will gratify his flesh. He looks at the water and he says, hmm, this is well watered. There's not going to be a lot of work involved. I can just pull my cattle right up to the river and they can drink. I can work land that's fertile and easy. Oh, there's cities there. It's well populated. There's a metropolis. There's lots to do, lots of people to meet. This is going to be fun for the family. Let's do this based on what we see, not with eyes of faith, but with eyes of the flesh. But we see how ominous this decision is. We see what's coming. We see that this is going to lead to, ultimately, corruption. Now, we're going to cover these cities a little more in depth as we go through the book of Genesis in the future. But now we're given this little glimpse, this little foreshadowing that trouble is afoot in Sodom and Gomorrah. We also see in verse 13, the men of Sodom are wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That's not a good title, by the way. You don't want to be a great sinner against the Lord. We'll see what those sins particularly are as we go into this study. But as Lot is now separated from Abram, notice verse 14. God, again, reaffirms his covenant now with a little bit of something you can see says, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, same phrase, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Do you see, God is saying, lift up your eyes, not to just see something that looks well-watered. See what I have for you, Abram. Look with eyes of faith, not with eyes of the flesh. Don't look with your senses. Trust me, I'm the God of the promise. I'm going to give you this land. You're not going to have to fight for it. You're not going to have to pay for it. It's yours. Believe me for it. Eyes of faith. Look in every single direction. Don't choose this parcel or that parcel based on what you see with your physical eyes. But trust me, I'm faithful to do it. Now in verse 16, we have a confirmation of the promise. But now there's a visible reminder. Not only lift up your eyes and look around, but he's going to say, now lift up your feet and walk around. And so look at verse 16. He says, I will make your offspring, this is a promise, as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. God's saying, Abram, scoop down into the sand and toss it into the air and it becomes dust. And try to count the particles. Can you do that? That's impossible. It's innumerable. Abram, that's what your offspring are going to be like. Innumerable. I'm going to bless you. You have no children yet, and your wife is barren, and yet I'm going to do this. I'm gifting this land to you with no conquest or purchase. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your feet. Trust me. And so this is a reaffirmation of the promise that he's already begun to make in Genesis 12. We're going to see it repeated in Genesis 15, Genesis 18, and throughout Abram's life. 
It's going to be repeated to his son, Isaac. It's going to be repeated to his son, Jacob. It's going to be repeated to his innumerable offspring that still today to this generation, uh, we see his offspring. Now, look at verse 18. So Abram moved his tent. He's not moving towards Sodom. He's actually moving further west. He came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So different day, different place, different altar. He's continuing to wherever he goes, set up an altar, a permanent place where he can call on the name of the Lord. This, again, is a defiant act that is countercultural to the Baal worshipers in Canaan. He is right here in the place of Mamre, near these oak trees, and he's setting up an altar defiant against the culture. He's willing to be bold for his faith. Another settlement, settlement, another altar. Now, some historians in Israel believe that they know where this is at literally. They actually believe that there's a particular tree today that is still the oak of Mamre. In fact, it lived until 1996 and then died. And then in 2019, just a few years ago, it, it collapsed finally and uh, is not there anymore. And they would say, that was it. That's the tree. That's the oak of Mamre. And I'd say that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, we, we can't know that for certain. What we do know is Abram is moving his tent nearer, you could say, to the promise of God. He's trusting what God has said to him. God says, here's the promise. Here's what I'm going to do. Pick up the sand, look down at it. And Abram says, I'm going to move my tent closer into what God has promised. Lot, on the other hand, has moved his tents closer to the wicked and worldly corruption of Sodom. And church, it's very important for us to know the difference between walking by the flesh and walking by sight. Faith sees and seeks what God has promised, what God has provided, not what is attractive or alluring to our senses. A lot of times we are quick to make a decision and move our family just based on a job, just based on solely something that uh, makes common sense. It's very rare that we meet people that say, we have moved to Florida to this particular part of town because we've heard about your church. We want to be a part of this fellowship. So we're moving strategically closer because of the church, because of the work God is doing among this people. And so it's very important that we make decisions. We don't solely make them based on how much income it's going to help us with or what it's going to do in the flesh. But what is God calling us to do? You see, the flesh promises a lot, but it delivers very little. You know this, don't you? You can nod your head in agreement. You know that the flesh promises to offer you everything you're desiring. This is going to be pleasant. This is going to be joyful. This is going to give you freedom. This is going to give you relaxation. Appease the flesh. And what, what happens? We end up, as Hebrews says, it's pleasurable for a time, that season of sin. And yet, what does it ultimately do? It leads to, it's a liar. It's a false advertiser. In fact, I don't know if you've known this, but ice cream commercials have duped all of us. Uh, if you've, they don't have a lot of ice cream commercials, and there's a reason. It's very difficult for you to scoop Tillamook, which is clearly the best ice cream on the planet. Um, you, skip, you, you scoop up the Tillamook ice cream, you put it in the, in the bowl, and then you put hot lights with cameras on the ice cream. It's going to melt the ice cream. So producers have figured out an alternative to make sure, to ensure that they can get the full shot all day in studio without corrupting the shot. You know what they use? Mashed potatoes. I mean, who wouldn't love 
a big heaping scoop of chocolate drizzled mashed potatoes in that waffle, co- waffle cone with extra sprinkles. You see, the flesh in like manner, it's a silly illustration, but the flesh in like manner promises, this is, this is what you're going to get. And you scoop it up. Let's have it. Let's go for it. And then we see it's a false advertiser. We see what we end up with. And that's our second section. The second section shows us that the flesh will lead to corruption, it'll lead to bondage, and ultimately sin when it's fully conceived will produce death. We have some interesting names here, but I don't want you to get lost in the names. I want you to look at the confederation that's happening, the lines that are being drawn with these two sets of armies. So, verse 1, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedileamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined forces in the valley of Sidon, that is the Salt Sea. Verse 4, 12 years they had served Chedileamer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedileamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Sheva Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to In Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chedileamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. That means they lost. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And then a very telling verse, verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Now, oh, we got through those grueling sets of names. Now, what I want us to do is jot down three subpoints in this section. And let's consider what is happening here. Again, don't get lost by the names. The thir- first thing I want you to jot down is that to increase might, kingdom alliances were often made. Now, these are not big kingdoms. These are not even moderately sized kingdoms. These are cities or towns. So the kings or the rulers of each of these cities are working together to increase their might. Otherwise, alone, they wouldn't have had any ability to cast off uh, anyone's influence. So remember, ever since the dispersion in Babel, under Nimrod's cruel and, uh, and godless regime, the peoples had become divided by tongue and ethnicity. But now the rulers of these various cities who have all been populated in the ancient Near East, they band together with the cities or the towns nearby them to confederate together and to try to strengthen their forces and protect themselves. So in this text, we have four powerful kings who make war with five less powerful kings. Verse 4 tells us why this war came about. 
So for 12 years, the five smaller cities were under the jurisdiction of this particular king of Elam. But in the 13th year of his reign, they rebelled. So within a year, within the 14th year of his reign, he brings an alliance of three other city kings and they fought against the rebels. Verse 7 tells us that when they came back from war, they also fought on the way home two other peoples, the Amalekites and the Amorites. Now you want to circle those names here in verse 7 because these are very important groups and they're very evil groups against Israel. We're going to see how important those are in future studies. Secondly, I want you to jot this down, that in war, the defeated territories became the spoils of the victor. So not only did those who were defeated have their land now transferred under the dominion of the victorious opponent, but the people themselves and all that they possessed now belonged to the victor. So in verse 12, we see that Lot and his possessions were taken as spoils of war. Why is that? Why didn't Lot see the army encroaching? And he's not in Sodom, is he? He just get in his tent, pack it up, get his family, get his uh, flocks, and head to Hebron to be with Abram. Why didn't he do that? Because of our third subpoint. If you're taking note, number three, Lot was living in Sodom at this time. You see, in chapter 13, we read that Lot had moved his tent as far as Sodom, but here we learn he's dwelling in Sodom. Ostensibly, his tent has been packed up. Now he's a permanent citizen in the city walls. Later, we're going to see him in a few chapters as a prominent citizen, not just living in Sodom, but he's a man of influence in the city gates, conversing with the other influential men and important men of the city. And see, all of this paints a very telling picture. Lot's decision to lift up his eyes and to decide not with what God had for him, but what he desired with his eyes, something that looked good on paper, that looked good on the flesh, in the flesh to decide based on that, it had devastating consequences. You see, he's now a prisoner of war. He's now a captive. He's now a slave to a cruel and oppressive ruler. Now, some of us hear that and we go, oh, I pity Lot. Poor guy. He was a slave. I can't relate to that. And yet, the scripture tells us, doesn't it, that you and I are all born in that state, in our natural state. You and I are born as slaves of sin. You and I, in our natural state, in Adam, are spiritually dead. We are in bondage. We have been taken captive. We lived according to the flesh, and that leads to corruption, to bondage, and ultimately, it'll give birth. Sin will give birth to death. Paul would tell the Romans what it looks like to be an unbeliever. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, believers, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. I want to just speak to someone here today who may not be a believer yet, and you are walking in the course of this world. You, you are following the desires of the flesh. The scripture says that you set your minds on those things and eventually it might seem like you're free, but eventually it'll lead to destruction. He says the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it's not, I want to know the Lord. I want to serve him. You're unable to. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Therefore, you can try everything you can, but there's nothing you can do to please God because you are in the flesh. You need someone to rescue you, to save you, to set you free, to make the spirit of God come alive in you, to be born again from above. If you're an unbeliever, you are bound in your flesh and you are in bondage. So Spurgeon would ask the question, how can we as believers who are in the spirit, who have set our minds set upon the things of the spirit, how can we ever be allured to follow the ways of the sinful nature? How could we ever be drawn back into making decisions in the flesh? He said this, he said, those believers who conform to the world must expect to suffer for it. How often is that true in your life? As a believer, you fall into the things of the world and you suffer for it. Well, Lot's decision to appease his desires, it has reaped disastrous consequences, but even in his helpless state, we're gonna see Abram rising up, a savior rising up, to set him free, to bring freedom and life. That's our third section. And let's look at verse 13. This is pretty bleak. And it would be silly for us to say to Lot, save yourself. Turn to one of the prisoners and ask for their help. Uh, that would be cruel and unkind. You need someone from the outside. So notice verse 13. One who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. Now, we don't know much about these two men. Uh, their names, Eshkol means cluster of grapes, and Aner means song. And we do know now they're confederates with Abram. And Mamre, the place where the oaks are, now we learn it belongs to their brother, Mamre the Amorite. The Amorites are those groups of people that live in the land that are going to be driven out, sinful people. But Mamre's name means to see or to understand. So this place... It may belong to him, but eventually God's going to drive he and his descendants out and Abram will be able to dwell there. Eventually, Israel uh, will uh, take root there. But for now, he's aligned with these other men. Verse 14, when Abram heard from this person who escaped that his kinsmen had been taken captive, what does the text not say? It doesn't say he rolled his eyes and he scoffed at Lot and said, I knew that that kid was making a mistake. No, what does it say? It says, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, Dan is about as far north as you can go from Sodom, 200 miles away. So this is quite the journey. But notice with me how large Abram's tent has become. 318, not just men, but trained men who were born in his house, that's not counting the women. It's not counting the children or the youth or those untrained. So his house has grown exponentially. He is rich and he is blessed. But in the next section, he acts like a warrior king. Notice verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Note with me the wisdom of Abram. He goes at night. He divides his forces. He pursues them until he gets Lot back. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't run out with a sword alone and say, I'm going to walk by faith. Notice that he doesn't 
pursue them in the middle of the day. He doesn't pursue them all with one army. He uses wisdom. He goes at night. He divides his army. He goes with trained men. You see, this is the balance of the ledger that we studied last week. Last week, we understood that, that Abram needed to trust God in the famine, and he needed to trust God going into Egypt, and he needed to not rely on his own resources. But here we have the, 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 the balance as we unscroll this ledger. We realize that trusting God doesn't mean that we don't use the wisdom he's given us, the initiative that he's given us, the resources that he's given us, or the boldness to accomplish his will. Walking by faith, listen, doesn't mean you just sit at home and trust God to provide for you. It also means that you rise up and you clock in on time or early and you work as unto the Lord. God will provide through various means. Often he will provide through generous believers uh, who see a situation you're going through and they, they will help you. They will take the initiative like Abram does here. Other times God will provide in ways that we just, we can't even fathom, we can't understand. Often, he provides by putting our two hands to work and we work with all our might what he's given us to work. And so it's not just one size fits all. We have to trust God and use the resources. Now, Abram didn't sit at home and say, I'm just gonna trust God to defend this huge family if any enemy comes to exploit us. And it sounds like they were doing this in his day. No, this took many years of training and resources to train up 318 men who had been raised in his household. He was ready then. He was ready to pursue the enemy. He was ready, hands trained for war. And he has a great victory. Notice the extent of his victory in verse 16. Not only did he save Lot, but also all the possessions and the women and the people. Listen, this salvation was not minimal. It wasn't just barely enough. He was barely saved. No, it was to the uttermost. It was absolute. It was complete. Sadly, however, as we'll see in a future chapter, Lot goes back into Sodom. And eventually God's wrath is poured out upon sinners and Lot's fate as well as the fate of his wife come down to where they lift up their eyes and look. For Lot, there was nothing here that he could do to improve his condition. He had been carried away captive. He needed an outsider, not another prisoner who was incapable in his own bondage to save. He needed someone mighty, someone who could overthrow these undefeated powerful rulers. He needed a savior who was willing to risk his own life and limb in order to rescue him. Does that sound familiar to you? David Gusick says, we were those who were off in sin and shame rescued by one who left his safety and happiness. Our kinsman redeemer went to great trouble and distance and with his courage and daring, he defeated the mighty enemy that had put us in bondage and he took all the enemy's spoil. What a wonderful savior. What a wonderful salvation. As we close this morning, the Lord God calls us as his children and as his followers to lift up our eyes. And we can choose to lift up our eyes like Lot or like Abram. To look with our flesh or to look with eyes of faith. That phrase, lift up your eyes, is used in a variety of places in Scripture. Too many to recount, but here's four places. In Psalm 121, 1 and 2, the psalmist said, lift up your eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We are reminded to not look to the arm of the flesh 
To not look to an army to save, but to look to the Lord. The flesh is powerless to save. Isaiah 40, 26 through 28, he says, lift up your eyes to the stars. Look up into the heavens. God has called them all by name. The one who made them and sustains them knows each one of them by name. You and I look up, we say, that's impossible. That's how intimate God knows his creation. God this morning is all-knowing. And so lift up your eyes to the one who knows all things. Isaiah 49, 18, Isaiah says, lift up your eyes and see that there's returning exiles into the land. God will keep his promise, even though you look around at Babylon and think all is lost. No, God is doing a new thing. In the midst of trouble and calamity, God is at work and nothing can thwart his promises. So lift up your eyes and see that he's faithful to keep his promise. Finally, John 4:35. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. You and I may not see the work of God by his spirit, but we need a heavenly perspective. We need God to be our vision. So may we, as we've studied this text, may we this week consider the folly, the bondage, the death that is bound up in the flesh. If you're not a believer here, it doesn't matter if your family is saved this morning. Have you trusted Christ? Have you turned from your sin? May we see the bondage and death that's bound up in our flesh. May we, as Christians, see the wonder of our Savior who's delivered us, Colossians 1 says, from the dominion of darkness. He's transferred us to the dominion, the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. May this week, may we be reminded as we see Abram's saving lot, may that remind us of our own salvation. I've been saved, as we just sang. He looked upon my helpless state and he led me to the cross. Every time we sing that song, All I Have Is Christ, I just re- I'm reminded of those days when I was running. I wasn't a seeker. I was seeking the flesh. And the scripture says there's one who seeks, the one who seeks and saves the lost, the one who seeks those who will worship in spirit and in truth. God sought after me. And so may this week, maybe we should be reminded of the wonder of our salvation. But for all of us, may we lift up our eyes May we trust in his unwavering promise because the scripture says he who promised is faithful. Church, we've seen prayers, specific prayers answered this week in the life of our church. And I know you've seen an answer to prayer in your own life. So let's continue to trust a God whose credit score of faithfulness has always been 100%. Let's continue to trust him. Amen? Let's stand together. Bow your heads with me as we pray, our all-powerful, ever-faithful God, we beseech you today to make us worthy of your calling. We ask that you would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by your power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and us in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, would comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Lord, we ask that you would be our vision, that you would help us lift up our eyes from our plight, from our sin, from the allure of this world, and to set our mind on things above where Christ is seated. We ask that our lives would be lived for your glory, for your renown. And we pray this in the mighty, saving name the name above all names, the only name that can save, Jesus Christ our Lord.
for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.